Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hello everyone and welcome to today's ODI Fridays talk. I'm Hannah Folds, Head of Marketing and Production at the ODI um, and it's my pleasure this afternoon to welcome Danny Bluestone, CEO of Cyberduck, a leading full service digital agency and ODI members uh, no less. Um, very little health data is computerized so how is data about us being managed and how can we ensure that this is being communicated? Danny will be um, discussing these important questions today. Just a few things to note, today's talk will be recorded. So um, if you're in the audience, please turn off your uh, mics and your cameras while Danny's talking. Um, if you've got any questions for Danny, um, and please do ask questions, please put them into the chat and I'll ask you to read them out at the end, or please indicate if you'd like me to do that on your behalf. Um, I think that's all from me, so over to you now, Danny. Hi everyone. So let me just share my screen. Cool. So um, yeah, it's really it's fantastic to, to be here. Hopefully you can all uh, hear, hear me okay and see the screen. So um, I'm going to be talking about um, electronic health records and transforming the uh, patient experience. It's something that I am very sort of passionate about, both as a, as, as a user and obviously a practitioner who, 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 you know, works in digital as well. So the talk today is pretty much going to cover the, the, the landscape, um, the landscape of electronic health records, um, some of the challenges that exist, as well as, as how user-centered design as, as a solution can help to almost complement what is happening um, at the moment. And, and of course, the kind of the future and, and looking at a couple of exemplars and examples um, of where things are kind of where things are heading, really. So, so just a bit about me, um, pretty much had a keen interest in computing design um, and data since the 80s. Um, I started to become a practitioner in, in the late 90s, primarily working as a flash designer and developer, if you remember what Flash was, uh, something that I used to get very excited about. Um, but th I, I then um, took a, a master's degree in design for interactive media, which was essentially a, a precursor of UX. Um, and, th and then sort of started Cyberduck in 2005 with a view to kind of bridge the gap between uh, data, design, technology, and content. Um, and today we're, we're a digital agency focused on uh, digital transformation through user-centered design and, and, and web technology. So essentially clients come to us with, with large sort of data and content problems. And our clients include governments, intergovernmental um, organizations like the Commonwealth, European Union, um, as well as the British government. Um, and then we also were fortunate enough to have a lot of clients in the private sector as well, in healthcare, financial services, and education. So this sort of holistic view of different industries really gives us a lot of um, insights into problem solving. And as, as I mentioned, it, it, it's very sort of quantitative as well as qualitative in a sense that we get to talk to a lot of users to really understand 
the why and sort of navigate around, you know, not only what are the issues, but why the issues are happening. And I think sort of being grounded with user-centered design is a massive kind of benefit because it keeps us close to the people, but also enables us to, to really develop excellent user experiences and, and develop software that actually works um, for um, users. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to cover sort of a, a brief intro, I guess, to electronic health records. So why do we need them? Well, essentially, effective health data, effective health data enables the, the sort of three P's of healthcare, which is prediction, prevention, and personalized medicine. And ultimately, when everything is digitized properly, uh, medical professionals will be able to deliver better healthcare to, to, to us and our families, uh, save more lives and empower the patients to act sooner, actually. Um, and this sort of subject is very close to me. Um, so recently, um, this is my brother who, who was sort of featured in the, um, in the press. He's a musician, but he was talking about us as a family almost losing our mother because she, she, she ended up um, having to have like emergency um, heart surgery. And she, she just didn't have any data to sort of guide her or her doctors. Um, and I think if, if her, herself and, and her doctors and medical practitioners were informed by medical, better medical data, um, I, I think that um, potentially we could have avoided the situation that we ended up in. Luckily, she's, um, she, she made a full, a full recovery. And... Um, yeah, data does does save lives. We've known this since the um, the nineteenth century how important data actually is. Um, so, so the, this map here demonstrates a clear pattern correlating uh, sort of deaths to water sources. Um, so obviously, again, a great discovery made by Dr. John Snow um, in the nineteenth century, um, and it's happening even today. You know, the same thing happened in twenty twenty when. <laughs> You know, I think the NHS in this country did a great job of um, doing sort of data gathering and data analysis with uh, dex dexamethasone. Um, you know, it saved millions of lives all, all, all over the world. And um, essentially data is being kind of generated in lots of different places now, you know, so, so from sort of wearables, all the way to you know cloud kind of computing, um, more and more data uh, about our health is being gathered in um, lots of places. Now, whether something like a wearable is is in medical grade, again, that's a controversial subject. Some people agree, some some disagree. We're obviously not going to go into that now. But the whole point of this is is that there's lots of being data uh, being generated. It's, it's sort of, I guess, healthcare being left behind. So um, if, if we look at this, um, we can see that um, without clinicians getting the right data, you know, within the right interface at the right time, medical mistakes are being made and will be made. Um, illegibility, for example, is a huge problem where, um, you know, the conversion issues that you see in this graph where potentially practitioners are um, using a combination of hybrid paper and digital is causing 13% of um, failures with regards to electronic health records. So, so this is a Harvard study from uh, 2017. And just to kind of give this a bit of more of a personal kind of look, um, um, as you can see, it, it, these sort of issues with electronic health records can cost lives. This is a tragic um, story here of a, um, a toddler who was um, sadly in America 
given 20 times the dose that she actually needed when she was in um, hospital. So this is a matter of life and death simply because the clinician didn't read the, um, um, the data correctly. And there, there is, of course, a huge kind of polarization um, of how electronic health records are being employed, both from a practitioner um, in, in a clinical setting as well from a patient experience. This is um, um, uh, two, two different apps. One is the NHS app. One is um, an app in Israel. Um, and also countries like Estonia as well have, have sort of a complete or total digitization of all kind of touch points or all kind of records and all interactions with patients are essentially completely digitized in, in countries like Estonia and, and Israel as well. Um, so um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about this later, about some, some of the comparables later on in the talk. And um, yeah, um, in other industries, as you, as, you, as, as you can see in this example, like the financial services sector, um, things like open banking have, have definitely kind of paved the way and provided kind of almost like a shining light onto, onto what could potentially happen in, um, in healthcare, where uh, the competitions um, and markets authority or the CMA force kind of banks to open up their data through new secure standards and APIs. So if monolithic banks can, can connect their data, why can't, you know, pharmacies, hospitals, insurance companies, trusts, you know, even when you go to like more of an auxiliary healthcare professional, like, um, you know, a chiropractor or, 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 or someone like, you know, someone like that, for example, why can't they see, see you know, your scans on, on file? Why do you have to bring, either send them emails or bring CD-ROMs? Um, and in this kind of, hopefully you can get the video to work here. Um, but you can see, um, you know, so for example, all of your accounts in one place, everything is connected. Um, and this is kind of what open banking or, or PSD2, as it's called, is done to the financial sector industry. So, so, so certainly I think it's, it's a great example of connectivity um, and different sort of completely different systems connecting, connecting up. Of course, um, you know, so, so there was a pledge in 2018, again, to, to go so by 2020 to be completely paperless, that, that obviously hasn't happened. So this is an article from um, 2020. Um, and in the same year, like in 2018, 94% of trusts were still using handwritten notes. Um, so it's that sort of digitization um, still hasn't happened. Now at Cyberduck, as I mentioned at the beginning, we talk, we talk to users to try and understand, you know, what they think about all of these things. So um, this is a quote uh, from um, a particular uh, user where essentially they're saying that it would be good if there was better connectivity between the departments because essentially they're having to act as, as a conduit, you know, between all the different um, professionals that they, they see. And naturally somebody with complex, you know, medical needs um, will obviously um, have a lot of paperwork and files that they need to carry around. So if things are digital, it inherently makes everything a lot easier. And, and obviously the issues aren't just UK specific. This is not about the UK being behind. This is actually about, you know, a global society being behind. Um, this is a good um, quote from a, um, a you know, a Spanish hospital uh, where the CEO was basically saying there were virtually no electronic um, health record 
um, sharing uh, across Spain during the first uh, wave of COVID. So, so you can see where you can already see why this is such an important topic because even if there were errors made for you know two or three percent, we're talking about of those patients, we're talking about people's lives here. Um, so, so in terms of like the current situation that we're in um, and, and obviously the current sort of solutions, um, firstly, we need to sort of remind ourselves that um, there's been many initiatives to digitize um, health records, um, but, you know, from obviously Tony Blair all the way to 2014 with a project called um, care.data, Care which tried to link all of the patient records together. But again, it, it sort of fell down due to confidentiality, workability issues. And, and the, these sort of problems still exist today, seven years later, um, with, with the current sort of initiatives as well. One of the key uh, problems is obviously security and, and, and trust. So, so probably one of the most famous and largest ransomware attacks in the world sadly happened uh, to, to the NHS with the WannaCry attack. Um, it was the biggest ransomware attack in history, um, you know, and it probably could have been prevented, you know, was it not prevented because of budgetary issues, because of, you know, process or kind of other constraints? It's not entirely clear, but clearly it's sort of, it's eroded public trust. So this is another quote from um, some somebody that one of the users that we spoke to, where um, people are essentially unsure if the NHS has the technology and resources to make their, their uh, or sort of create like a, an ecosystem of um, an environment where their data can be truly uh, managed securely. Um, there are also various kind of accountability questions. Um, so this was a, a study from a couple of years ago where almost um, 10,000 patient records were reported as missing. Um, you know, so clearly more needs to be done there to, to protect the, the identity of um, and, and kind of the, the, the privacy of, of patient records and integrity. Um, and clearly, you know, um, the access to those kind of records should really be given to, to us as, I guess, consumers or patients so we can actually see what, what data is held on us in, in, in the first place. And this kind of ties into the, um, the NHS sort of latest initiative. Um, so obviously I'm sure you've all seen this in the news. Uh, it's, it's literally kind of in the last couple of weeks where there was supposed to be a, a kind of cutoff point to, you know, opt out of having your data scrapped, but there's still, you know, a lot of big, there's a big nervousness and issues around and confusion around, you know, what are the big tech companies going to be doing with the data? Um, and I think this is where it's really important to converse with users and understand how, how they feel and just get that qualitative view across obviously the different cohorts or demographics that exist. But fr from the users that we spoke to, I just wanted to share one quote where the user said, you know, that obviously they're fine for their information to be shared anonymously for obviously medical research. Um, but they want more transparency on how their data is going to be used and what it's going to be used um, for. Um, and I think I think it kind of goes back to what a lot of people see on social media and the news and how obviously the government is communicating with users about all of this kind of efforts. 
Um, and, and again, having sort of one sort of centralized data storage solution isn't, isn't a bad thing. Um, and bringing kind of, you know, analysts and, and medical researchers to the data source to, to essentially process the data and, and kind of learn from the data is something that's been widely um, happening for decades. As an example here, um, it, the census data is accessed by um, a variety of analysts um, and researchers. Um, so this is a screenshot from the Office for National Statistics. Um, and again, this has been happening now for, for, for decades. Um, and I think the reality is, is, and again, the pandemic has obviously been um, a big driver in this, is, is that people want everything now to be digital. You know, in, in terms of the people that we've spoken to, it certainly is, 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 is the case. I don't think anyone particularly likes walking around hospitals with, with folders of paper and having to print letters. Um, it, it's not really a efficient um, um, kind of way to live our lives and, and for obviously medical practitioners to access our, our, our information and having to scramble and read people's um, handwriting. Um, and, and so users are demanding kind of control and, and connectivity, um, not just for the health professionals, but for themselves. Um, and this is where these, this kind of NHS number comes in. It, it's obviously a unique um, identifier to, to, to all of us. And I think if you go back a few decades there, I think the government was struggling to find this kind of unique identifier. So it's, it's pretty much been around since the, the early uh, 2000s, where every sort of child that is born is given this number. And, and anyone that's registered with the NHS can essentially approach them to get their um, NHS uh, number. The, the, the problem with it is, it is it's still not widely advertised. And a lot of the users that we, we spoke to, especially kind of within, you know, a demographic that is a younger demographic, let's say people in their 20s, 30s and 40s that have relatively few health conditions haven't heard of the NHS number um, and they only really heard about it since the, 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 the pandemic. So um, what you can see here with this um, particularly Google trend graph is the NHS number started to spike when we saw the vaccination drive. Um, and that's when people started to Google, um, you know, the what is my NHS number? Um, there was very little um, kind of awareness of this from the, the research that we've seen um, until sort of December, January um, uh, 2020. So in terms of like the user-centered difference, this is where we believe that user-centered design as a solution can really help to kind of frame and ground all of us. Um, when I say all of us, it's, it's like obviously digital professionals, healthcare professionals, government officials, to sort of really understand you know, why, why they have concerns, um, because sometimes you can just get lost in the data. And I think um, user, user research is a really great way of getting qualitative um, validation and inputs. So, so in terms of some of the findings that we found, um, so we had one of our um, researchers look into this. Um, in terms of pain points around electronic health records, there's clearly kind of communication issues. Um, where, where the different teams aren't talking to each other, the medical teams, and there's inconsistencies in terms of obviously how data is recorded and accessed and, and shared. 
Um, some of the users complained that there's an information overload. So when they, for example, go into the NHS app, there's too much information and they're not actually finding the information that they need. And when they find the information that they need, there's not enough information. So it's a bit of a kind of paradox, but kind of makes sense in the context. Some users, as, as I mentioned before, with the NHS number are unaware that they can even access their medical or, or digital records. Other sort of concerns that emerged is people are concerned about privacy and of, the, of their data and confidentiality. Um, and, and sort of past negative experiences when data was handled correctly. I, mean, I, I remember when uh, my second child was born and they had my address down as, as like the Isle of Man or somewhere like that. I mean, God knows where they got that from. Um, and it's just like obviously multiple errors are being made, which I think all of us see on a, on a sort of regular basis, as well as a need for more, more transparency about you know, how and why the data is shared with third parties. And I think a big, big problem is kind of how the government is communicating uh, the need to digitize um, these electronic health records. And it, it's just sort of coming, I think, the intentions are good, but I think the communication is, 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 is about bad. And I think there's a whole kind of marketing problem around trying to sort of almost market the need to digitize and, and what, how literally the details of how the data, where the data is going to be stored and how it's going to be handled. In terms of some of the motivations, um, some people need to actually access records for work purposes, even for like job interviews. And I think if you think about these kind of need states and you get the sort of qualitative input, it does change the way that you look at the app and, and um, web, you know, and what potentially could be on a website as well. Um, some people need to, to need the um, medical kind of data to, to look at their vaccination status, um, as well as kind of having sort of a one-stop digital solution for all of their interactions with the NHS. But you know, not everyone can can use the app. And I, I think a website would also be a logical place to kind of house that data. And, and, and crucially speaking, you know, it would be great for people to walk into a pharmacy and for the pharmacist to have kind of all of their medical kind of records so they can actually get a repeat prescription without potentially having to go to the GP. I'm not saying that in all instances um, that should happen, but it would definitely empower the pharmacist to see a, a, a medical um, history and record. And um, what, what's sort of very, very clear, I mean, this comic applies to sort of digital transformation, you know, and how it's been impacted by COVID in kind of more of a business sense, but actually this comic applies to the healthcare, um, to healthcare as well. Um, patients have become during the pandemic much more comfortable with remote and computer diagnosis and, and obviously treatments. And this is kind of backed up by the user research that we've done at, at, at Cyberduck, where the vast majority of the population now are becoming very comfortable with digital. And that's providing that the digital kind of experience is inclusive and accessible and kind of takes in mind, you know, user limitations, disabilities, you know, cognitive kind of disabilities as well. Um, so, so, so I think that the NHS and, and the government have recognised all of this and, and they did release this, um, I, think, I think, sort of a couple of days ago now, three days ago, um, that user involvement is obviously pivotal for the, this kind of new data, data strategy or policy paper that was released by uh, Matt 
Hancock. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that they have recognized is that, is that patients or the general public need to be involved in this health data strategy. At the moment, I think the intention is there. I think the government is trying to do the right things, but I think it's struggling to communicate and to market, you know, the clarity of basically the situation. And I think it can be improved. And I think saying that, I think the intention is there um, and hopefully will, will improve. So, so just kind of in terms of the um, uh, the data sort of, I guess, difference between different sort of um, countries and, and locations. So if we look at countries like Estonia and Israel, which are, again, a far smaller countries than the UK. So it's a 10 million people in Israel, but obviously, again, extremely um, ahead when it comes down to digitization of medical records. And I just wanted to show you a couple of examples of, of kind of how our kind of, I guess, app or access to medical records compares to their app. So, so on the left-hand side, we have the, um, uh, the NHS app, and on the right-hand side, we have the app from, from Israel. And obviously, I put in kind of the translation there for you, but essentially with this particular app from, from Israel, you can view your, your uh, medical records, you can book appointments, you can chat to your doctor, you can even sort of, there's even a ticketing system with doctors um, as well. You can also view um, the results of all your lab, lab, lab tests within, within the app itself. Um, whereas our app is, is, is kind of a bit more limited. So when you, in, on our app, if you look at the left-hand side, when you click on view your GP health record, what it actually displays after lots of sort of scrolling and tapping, so there's about four steps to, to get through to the records. All the records are, are essentially um, prescriptions that you've been given. There's no record of the GP that you saw, um, your diagnosis, or, or any of the symptoms that you, you had. Whereas um, on, on the Israeli one, as you'll see in the next screen, um, it's not the case. This is just a comparable for the um, Israeli app where you see the prescriptions. Um, and on the Israeli app, you can see all the uh, medical professionals, um, all the doctors. So this is a list of the doctors where you can basically tap on it and then get more information about exactly what was discussed and, and what was um, um, concluded in each uh, doctor's appointment. You then have um, um, test results, including the chemistry results of um, your medical appointment, all within the app. Um, and that's something that, that's sort of ubiquitous across all healthcare, um, uh, all the healthcare in that country. And every single patient has everything 100% digital. Um, and I think there's, there's some great things happening in the UK as well. So, so in terms of the data, at least, um, we can see the excellent work that was done here where this particular dashboard gets 19 million views um, a week from the general population who again are informed. In fact, we were looking at this today um, in, a, in a separate uh, meeting that we had with our management team, um, just having a look at, at, at the data to kind of almost kind of um, make decisions on, on um, a gathering that we were planning to have. Uh, it, so this is an extremely helpful, professional and useful, um, useful um, dashboard. So, so I think there are kind of beacons of lights um, and I think there's there's some really great progress in this country as well. Naturally, none of this would be possible without all of the, you know, the data scientists um, and professionals um, 
you know, across kind of the UK um, that are working on, on the, these sort of capabilities. Um, and things are kind of heading into, you know, a really kind of exciting place where um, more and more data is being generated. So things like genomics, for example, where one could potentially see, um, you know, family hereditary kind of health conditions and then kind of use that data in combination with, with sort of their medical records and, and the results of tests to, to sort of further improve their, their lives unleashes tremendous possibilities uh, to inform um, users. Obviously, you know, there are sensitivities around, um, you know, genetic data being sort of revealed and being accessed by, let's say, an insurer. Um, so, of course, it's, it's there, there are some controversies here as well. But um, again, all, all this kind of data needs to be mapped out into some sort of data strategy where, where users should really be able to access this data, connect the data together, and kind of seek their own conclusions. Um, now, um, there's further kind of developments as well, like conversational UI and AI, for example, is a really exciting area here. And I'm talking obviously both kind of on the clinical side as well as kind of the, the, the patient side. But um, in this particular example here, a comp uh, um, an Israeli company called uh, Vocalist basically uh, took 1,500 voice samples um, of um, of users that um, um, of coughs basically to cr create a, a pilot sort of COVID-19 screening tool. So, so the tool was not intended to provide you know, definitive, definitive medical diagnosis, but was there to help clinicians sort of triage potential cases. Um, so whilst you know, it's probably not sort of a commercial product that's ready to go, it's an interesting um, development. And this was um, published in Nature magazine. Um, so as we saw earlier, sort of virtual consultations are increasing. Um, Medical, obviously, staff and GPs are spread extremely thin thinly. Um, so if you can just imagine like a care home or, or, or a large school with thousands of, of pupils where you then have access to a GP, telemedicine and, and kind of Internet of things, kind of medical devices can be used in tandem with like video consultations to, um, to really provide healthcare professionals with better kind of medical uh, diagnosis data. This is actually uh, one of Cyberduck's clients, a company called Techie Health, who are actually, um, um, we're working with them on, on kind of their um, product innovation and, and helping them with their business at the moment. So um, just, just to sort of um, wrap up, um, we're getting towards the end now. So, uh, you know, it's a great quote from the CEO of NHSX where patients need to own their data and obviously have confidence um, of how their data is going to be handled. And um, the future of healthcare should be not just about data saving lives, but effective data preventing and predicting illnesses. It can then be used as personalized medicine. Customers should have, or patients should have control over their data. They should be able to not only see their data, but connect it to the services that they want to make it portable. So if somebody's moving from one country to another country, they should be able to take their data with them. Obviously, that this is kind of where something potentially like blockchain could, could be used. We haven't really covered that today, but clearly from a 
technological perspective, there's lots of kind of ways that that data could be stored. Um, and users obviously should not be informed by social media alone. The, 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 I think the government has a duty to engage kind of GPs and, and kind of community centers. So they're actually communicating with um, uh, users like us about the data strategy. We do have um, um, a, um, a great sort of book that we'll put in the chats, which is our, a free book about sort of user-centered design and how it can be used to design better products, systems, services, and ecosystems. So, so hopefully you'll, you'll um, uh, download the, the book, which is, again, a free download. So it's been great to chat to all of you. Um, and I'd be, be keen to sort of take any sort of questions that you may have. So I'm just going to stop um, screen sharing now. Thank you so much, Danny, uh, for such insightful talk. Um, over to the audience now for some questions. I can see some emerging already, thank you, in the chat. Please continue adding to them. I'm just gonna kick off while people are thinking of their questions uh, with my own. Um, and we're thinking quite a lot about trust at the Open Data Institute as well. And you named trust as one of the key barriers. Um, and you mentioned transparency being important and communication. And you also mentioned reaching community centres and using GPs for communication at the moment. So how do, how do you think, do you have any ideas about how that communication might happen or what, what are the best ways of kind of marketing, as you, you put it, the, this um, new way of doing things, how, how that would work? Yeah, I, th I think first and foremost, it's a marketing challenge, isn't it? Because if we can get everybody together and to agree, yes, this is a, a, an amazing data strategy, um, because obviously not everyone is like us. We're obviously, you know, all, all of the people on in this Zoom call are data professionals and, and, you know, have above average kind of intelligence and knowledge of data, right? So, so we, clearly we're, we're sort of all, 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 all informed. But even here, some of the views may be very polarised, you know, with, with some of the people on this particular call being very sort of anti, like a company like Google, for example, for example, having access to medical data. So I think... The only way you can really kind of because there's always going to be different a difference of opinions, right? But if we can get the majority of the of the population to agree to a data strategy, I think the key kind of word here is clarity. Like it's basically clarity and acceptance. So it needs to be absolutely clear what we're doing and why we're doing as a, as a, as a society. Um, there needs to be a conversation as well. So it can't just be a one-way street where, you know, Matt Hancock says this and everybody says yes, it's, it's not going to happen. There needs to be dialogue. Uh, so there needs to be more. It almost needs to go through optimization in terms of the data strategy it needs different phases in terms of its communication plan. And the reason why I mentioned kind of GPs and communities is because when somebody walks into a, a GP surgery, there can be posters, there can be flyers. And, e and equally, like I, I didn't get anything through my letterbox to talk about the um, this particular kind of data strategy by the government. I only found out when bad press, most people are only finding out when there's negative press. By that point, it's too late. You've lost the battle. So it's a bit like, you know, you need to kind of rally um, the people behind you. You need to get people excited about it, explain the benefits through... And, the, you know, the reality is, is different people want to be communicated to in different ways. Some people, like a blind user, 
won't obviously benefit from getting a flyer in the post because they're blind, right? So they'll they'll probably prefer to get an email um, or something that their screen reader will be able to read out that particular message. Part of the problem that we have is the NHS doesn't communicate to the general public using emails, does it? So, so there's a huge kind of missed opportunity. You know, you're missing out tens of millions of people by not using email as a channel. The question is, why don't we use email as a channel? Other countries are using email, even WhatsApp, as, as communication methods. So, so I think there's a variety, you know, of kind of almost channel tactics that can be used to communicate to, to, to people about the data strategy and, and, and potentially even make it a two-way conversation as well with a very clear kind of plan because it's all good and well to publish something on, on, on uh, gov.uk but to actually make it happen is much more difficult and I think I think you know you have to have the community on board. Thank you Danny. I, I have a question from uh, Jenny. Um, it was um, a private message to me. Jenny, um, would you like to ask the question or would you prefer me to? Yeah, I can do that. Um, so it's, it's about the minister, ministerial forward in the draft data strategy uh, where it says that now is not the time to slow down or pause for breath. And I just worry that there's a there's a risk that we're going to carry on in this sort of pandemic emergency mindset and lose touch with the uh, the kind of measured critical evaluation that's that's needed uh, to build a, a safe and sustainable health data infrastructure. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think there's, you know, sometimes you need to stop, you need, you need to, you know, um, slow is the new fast, right? Um, so, so, so sometimes you need to slow down to actually get the, achieve the right results and the right strategy. And I think if, if something like this is rushed, I mean, you could argue that this has been going on, you know, since the days of Tony Blair, right? You know, so, so, so he was the one or his government at the time wanted to, to digitize the whole NHS and, and equally speaking in, in America, um, they have the same kind of problem as well, where I think it was George Bush number one who, who tried to do the same thing in the 90s. So it's, it's not an easy thing. And I think there's been various kind of strategies being developed over the years. So, so I kind of maybe th those particular words, you know, and that particular kind of I just think things are breaking down, right? Because this has been an initiative now and, and people have kind of thrown that out the window and they've had to do kind of a bit of a U-turn. So I do agree that slowing down is actually the right thing to do. But equally speaking, I think from a technology perspective, you know, technology architecture, data strategy, there needs to be kind of better communication because, you know, what does it actually mean um, in terms of the words that he said? It's still, you have to dig through you know, hundreds and hundreds of words just to try and find what the solution actually is. So, so I think there's there's a there's an issue around. Okay, what is the solution, and why is the solution good? And I think that that's not clear at the moment. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny, for the question. Um, Fran, I'm not sure if this is a a, a question or or just a a comment from you. Fran, would you like would you like to to, to share? Yes, hello everyone. Thank you for this very um, excellent presentation. I think one thing which is probably not, <coughs> excuse me, I have some long disease, 
something which is probably not well known, although it should be, is that in three different areas of England, um, as I speak, in Northwest London, in Nottinghamshire, and in Surrey, we have seen the implementation of a total integration of the NHS app, NHS login, and the patient's know best patient portal, which means basically that the patient is really at the center of digital health record. The, the, the patient owns the data and receives via smartphone or laptop or tablet, according to the patient's uh, preference. They receive information from their <clears throat> hospital, lab tests, uh, x-rays, uh, anything that uh, the hospital provides um, after hospitalization, during outpatient clinics, all the tests, um, imaging, etc. They also receive their GP record. And what we have seen in Northwest London, and I think Nottinghamshire is adopting that as well, is we now have social care as well. So basically, um, I'm at the centre, I've got my laptop, and I've got all these feeds coming into my integrated um, patient record. It has different names. In Northwest London, we call it the Care Information Exchange. In Nottinghamshire, they call it Connected Nottinghamshire. And I must confess that I don't know what they call it in, in Surrey. But basically, the patient owns the data and can also give access to whomever they want on this planet, on this globe. It can be to their next door neighbor, if they have an informal care, it can be their community pharmacist. They can give access to another clinician if they want a second opinion, or if they're elderly and they have um, um, uh, children living elsewhere, even in a different country, these children can still take care of their parents and help them monitor the data. In terms of giving access, there are four different categories, general health, sexual health, mental health, and social care. So if, <clears throat> sorry, I do apologize for my breathing issues. If the patient, for instance, doesn't, doesn't want anyone to know that they've had mental health issues, they, that they're under medication for mental health issues, or they have been um, hospitalized or anything, they don't have to give access to this part of the information. It's, it works extremely well. It's, um, it's actually the, the, in Northwest London, which is where I live and where I use this wonderful um, integration of different technologies all together to benefit the patient. We're now seeing um, an adoption rate of about 700 people a day. The main issue we've had in um, Northwest London, probably more so than in Nottinghamshire, is that there's been no marketing. As Danny, in fact, has mentioned several times, marketing is a big issue. The NHS has been and is very bad at communicating even the good news. I mean, the NHS has wonderful news. We don't know about them. So we've had this problem with this integration, but I would advise everyone, and um, um, you have my email address and you're all, anyone is welcome to contact me, to basically look into this integration of different technologies since the NHS app started as an app basically for smartphones. Uh, PKB started 10 years ago as a patient portal, very much uh, as a web-based portal. Anyway, the, the, the reality today is that we're having this great integration and which is wonderful. 
we need to make some noise about it. And I think um, that's what I've been trying to do. And thanks again for, uh, for inviting, inviting me to speak. That's, that, that was great to hear, Fran. I mean, it, I have heard of quite a few pilot schemes. I mean, I, I live in um, Northwest London myself, and I, I haven't heard about kind of Northwest London being integrated into this, and nor have I kind of, so I guess it depends. I mean, I haven't, you know, been to a doctor in, in, in a while myself, so, so that could potentially be, be why, but, um, you know, people in my family have, and I, I haven't heard about this besides what I read obviously in, in kind of the news and, and things like that. So it is, it is quite interesting. Thank you, Fran. Really appreciate that, um, that input there. Um, Neil, um, you have a question. Would you mind sharing it? Yeah, it was essentially just to come back to something I think Danny's touched on about the, um, trust issue and um, who is providing those safeguards because you know that, that, that recent incident leaves a very bad taste in the mouth um, so I just wondered if you could talk to that maybe a little Thanks. yeah I mean absolutely I mean the trust is obviously a critical challenge so even with what obviously Fran was was talking about now, which I've heard of these pilots um, in, in, I think I've heard about one in, in Cambridge as well. Um, you hear about it, but you don't, it's not really clear where the data resides, you know, who has access to the data. You obviously hear about, um, particularly about organizations like DeepMind, which is owned by Google, um, using things like machine learning um, for, for, for various kind of, um, scans to, to kind of almost like provide extra capabilities to to the NHS to empower clinicians like cardiologists and, and, and opticians. So obviously, you know, whilst, whilst, whilst um, this type of AI and machine learning makes medical professionals more empowered, which in turn gives um, us, you know, as, as, as sort of, I guess, patients or users faster services, better services, more accurate services, um, there's still a problem around trust, which is, you know, wh where is the data? Who owns the data? Is it really us owning the data? And, and I think what Fran was talking about there with kind of like where you specifically um, authenticate or authorize um, different kind of third parties who, who may want access to your data. I think that's critical. So, so once it's clear where the data is, who owns the data, you know, is it owned by yourself? Is it owned by the government? Where does, where is the data um, stored? Who has access to the data as well as kind of the different levels of consent around, you know, can, for example, a medical researcher access my data versus can Google access my scans to provide a better, service to a cardiologist as an example so so i think once all of that is presented in a way that is extremely clear i think that trust you know can can potentially be restored I, I, saying that i think certain individuals will want even more information you know like where are the data centers located is it on blockchain or not um what happens in the event of a hack um, so, so there's lots of obviously questions and I think trust 
different people based on kind of their persona type will, will require different levels of persuasion and, and, and detail, but, but trust can only really prov- can only be provided through credibility, communication, and obviously that this kind of almost emotional feeling that we have around our data. Thank you. Thanks for your question, Neil. Um, we've got time for one more question. Um, Yang, uh, would you like to read out your, your question to Danny? Oh, hi. Hi, Danny. Hi. Um, I, I see your presentation touch uh, quite a lot about transparency. So when the um, patients are uh, given the, 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 the informed consent to read through and tell them, Probably uh, we, we release more details about uh, how the data will be used um, would increase the transparency. But I also think of um, in in the perspectives of um, of um, uh, um, medical uh, researchers or um, clinic clinicians. Maybe we we hope patients can actively you know share their uh, records. Um, do do you think to to release some benefits, for example, societal benefits or um, good for um, treatment uh, development, uh, would be um, uh, something uh, uh, positive um, in this regard? And um, uh, can you talk more about uh, different types of benefits that a patient uh, would be uh, likely informed? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's really important for patients to kind of want to, um, you know, share their records to specifically to, for, for medical research, right? Because as, uh, you know, data scientists, um, medical practitioners, and, and, you know, all of these sorts of PhDs, right, that take data, crunch data, builds, you know, predictive and, and kind of personalized models, they, without data, they can't do their jobs, you, ne- you need sort of large quantities and, 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 and samples, uh, well, they do medical researchers, right? So, so I think, again, it's a marketing problem, you know, users or patients need to be taught these things, because unless you have a friend who's a medical researcher, you're not necessarily going to understand why it's important for your data to be essentially anonymously, you know, or using pseudonymization, for example, um, for somebody to do medical research on you. So so there's, there's, you know, whether it's through the NHS app or or, or a website or or further kind of marketing material, there needs to be a a push and an effort to explain to, to patients, you know, it's important for you to share your, your, your data anonymously, you know, it's not going to identify you, but it's going to help a medical professional or scientist to improve, you know, the future of healthcare and save more lives. So, so I think, it's a, again, it's a marketing problem in my view. Thanks for your question, Yang. Um, okay, I think it's time to wrap up. So uh, thank you again, Danny, and thank you to the audience for your great questions and some of your insights as well. Um, Please join us again next Friday. We've got Sharon Richardson, who's a senior scientist at the University of Zurich, asking, can an AI detect emotion? Big question. Um, 
you'll find it on the event section of our website so please do sign up and, and join us next week and um, thanks again danny thanks to everyone for joining us and uh, see you all soon have lovely weekends bye-bye thanks guys you've been listening to a friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the open data institute